Have you ever been traveling overseas, logged into your favorite streaming service, and realized ah, your favorite show isn't there? Different countries have different streaming rights, so just because you can watch Breaking Bad at home doesn't mean you can watch it overseas. Well, with Surfshark, you can. Surfshark is the VPN that I use every single day. I simply choose from one of their 3,200 plus servers in 100 countries and get back to watching the favourite shows that I love. Use the link in the description or the episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 per month on a two-year plan, and get back to watching the shows that you love. With continual development in technology, hackers and cyber criminals are getting better and better at installing viruses and hacking your electronic devices. We've all had antivirus software, but your run-of-the-mill software just isn't good enough anymore. With Surfshark Antivirus, not only will you have antivirus scans and real-time virus protection, but you'll also have access to a VPN. You'll be protected from targeted ads and tracking. You'll be notified if your data gets leaked by data brokers. And most importantly, it's incredibly easy to set up and use. If you feel like your online protection should be better, use the link in the description and episode notes to get 76% off Surfshark Antivirus today and feel safe every day on your devices. Hello, and welcome to the Essential Reads podcast. I'm Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of audiobooks from your favourite classic authors such as Orson Welles, Robert Louis Stevenson, John Steinbeck, and many more. Come join me on this journey to help get these books to the masses in an easy, accessible way. Let's start. Hello, and welcome to the Essential Reads podcast. I'm Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of audiobooks from your favourite classic authors such as Orson Welles, Robert Louis Stevenson, John Steinbeck, and many more. Come join me on this journey to help get these books to the masses in an easy, accessible way. Let's start. The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck Chapter 28 The boxcars, twelve of them, stood end to end on a little flat beside the stream. There were two rows of six each, the wheels removed. Up to the big sliding doors, slatted planks ran over for catwalks. They made good houses, watertight and draughtless, room for twenty-four families, one family in each end of each car. No windows, but the side doors stood open. In some of the cars, a canvas hung down in the centre of the car, while in others, only the position of the door made the boundary. The Jotes have one end of an end car. Some previous occupant had fitted up an oil can with a stovepipe, had made a hole in the wall for the stovepipe. Even with the wide door open, it was dark in the ends of the car. Ma hung the tarpaulin across the middle of the car. It's nice, she said. It's almost nicer than anything we've had except the government camp. Each night, she enrolled the mattresses on the floor, and each morning, she rolled them up again and every day they went into the fields and picked cotton, and every night they had meat. On a Saturday, they drove into Tulare, and they bought a tin stove and new overalls for Al and Pa and Winfeld and Uncle John, and they bought a dress for Ma, and gave Ma's best dress to Rose of Sharon. She's so big, Ma said, just a waste of money to get her a new dress now. The Jotes had been lucky, they got in early enough to have a place in the boxcars. Now the tents of the latecomers filled their little flat. And those who had the boxcars were old-timers 
and, in a way, aristocrats. The narrow stream slipped by, out of the willows and back into the willows again. From each car, a hard-beaten path went down to the stream. Between the cars, the clotheslines hung, and every day the lines were covered with drying clothes. In the evening, they walked back from the fields, carrying their folded cotton bags under their arms. They went into the store which stood at the crossroads, and there were many pickers in the store, buying their supplies. How much today? We're doing fine. Made three and a half today. Wish you'd keep up. Them kids is getting to be good pickers. Ma's worked them up little bags for each. They couldn't tow a growed up bag. Dump into ours. Made bags out of cup old shirts. Works fine. And Ma went to the meat counter, her forefinger pressed against her lips, blowing on her finger, thinking deeply. Might get some pork chops, she said. How much? Thirty cents a pound, ma'am. Well, let me have three pound, and a nice piece of boiling beef. My girl can cook it tomorrow. And a bottle of milk for my little girl. She dotes on milk. Gonna have a baby. Nurse lady tolerate lots of milk. Now let's see. We got potatoes. Pa came close by, carrying a can of syrup in his hands. Ma get this here, he said. Matter some hot cakes. Ma frowned. Well, well, yes. Here, we'll take this here. Now we got plenty lard. Ruthie came near. In her hands, two large boxes of Cracker Jack. In her eyes, a brooding question, which on a nod or a shake of Ma's head might become tragedy or joyous excitement. Ma? She held up the boxes, jerked them up and down to make them attractive. Now you put them back. The tragedy began to form in Ruthie's eyes. Pa said, they're only a nickel apiece. Them little fellows work good today. Well... The excitement began to steal into Ruthie's eyes. All right. Ruthie turned and fled. Halfway to the door, she caught Winfeld and rushed him out to the door, into the evening. Uncle John fingered a pair of canvas gloves with yellow leather palms, tried them on, and took them off, and laid them down. He moved gradually to the liquor shelves, and he stood studying the labels on the bottles. Ma saw him. Pa, she said, and mentioned with her head towards Uncle John. Pa lounged over to him. Going thirsty, John? No, I ain't. Just wait till the cotton's done, said Pa. Then you can go on a hell of a drunk. Taint sweating me none, Uncle John said. I'm working hard and sleeping good. No dreams or nothing. Just seen you sort of drooling at them bottles. I didn't hardly see him. Funny thing. I want to buy stuff. Stuff I don't need, like... Like to get one of them safety razors. Thought I'd like to have some of them gloves over there. Awful cheap. Can't pick no cotton with gloves, said Pa. I know that. And I don't need no safety razor neither. Stuff setting out there. You just feel like buying it, whether you need it or not. Ma called. Come on, we got everything. She carried a bag. Uncle John and Pa each took a package. Outside, Ruthie and Winfeld were waiting. Their eyes strained, their cheeks puffed and full of crackerjack. 
Won't eat no supper, I bet, Ma said. People streamed towards the boxcar camp. The tents were lighted. Smoke poured from the stovepipes. The Jodes climbed up their catwalk and into their end of the boxcar. Rose of Sharon sat on a box beside the stove. She had a fire started, and the tin stove was wine-coloured with heat. Did you get milk? she demanded. Yeah, right here. Gave it to me. I ain't had any since noon. She thinks it's like medicine. That nurse lady says so. You got potatoes ready? Right there, peeled. We'll fry them, Ma said. Got pork chops. Cut up them potatoes in the new fry pan and throw in an onion. You fellas go out and wash and bring in a bucket of water. Where's Ruthie and Winfield? They ought to wash. They each got Cracker Jack, Ma told Rose of Sharon. Each got a whole box. The men went out to wash in the stream. Rose of Sharon sliced the potatoes in the frying pan and stirred them about with the knife point. Suddenly, the tarpaulin was thrust aside. A stout, perspiring face looked in from the other end of the car. How'd you all make out, Miss Joe? Why evening, Miss Wainwright? We done good. Three and a half. Three fifty-seven execs. We done four dollars. Well, said Ma. Course there's more of you. Yeah, John has grown up. Having pork chops, I see. Winfeld crept in through the door. Ma? Hush a minute. Yeah, my men just loves pork chops. I'm cooking bacon, said Miss Wainwright. Can you smell it cooking? No, I can't smell it over these here onions and potatoes. She's burning, Miss Wainwright cried, and her head jerked back. Ma, Winfeld said. What, you sick from Cracker Jack? Ma, Ruthie told. Told what? About Tom? Ma stared. Told? Then she knelt in front of him. Winfeld, who'd she tell? Embarrassment seized Winfeld. He backed away. Well, she only told a, a little bit. Winfeld, now you tell me what she said. She, she didn't eat all the cracker, Jack. She kept some and she just said one piece at a time. Slow, like she always done. And she says, bet you wish I had some left. Winfeld, she demanded. You tell now. She looked back nervously at the curtain. Rosa Sean, you go over and talk to Miss Wainwright so she don't listen. How about these here potatoes? I'll watch them. Now you go. I don't want her to listen at that curtain. The girl shuffled heavily down the car and went around the side of the hung tarpaulin. Ma said, Now, Winfield, you tell. Like I said, she just ate one little piece at a time and and she bust some in two so it lasts longer. Go on, hurry up. Well, some kids come round, and of course they tried to get some, but, but Ruthie, she just nibbled and nibbled and wouldn't give them none. So they got mad, and one kid grabbed a Cracker Jack's box. Winfield, you tell quick about the other. I am, he said. So Ruthie got mad and chased him, and she fit one, and then she fit another, and then one big girl come up and licked her, hit her good. So Ruthie cried, and she said she'd get a big brother, and he'd kill that big girl. And that big girl said, oh yeah? And, well, she got a big brother too. 
Winterfell was breathless telling his story. So then they fit that big girl, and that big girl hit Ruthie, a good one. And Ruthie said her brother killed that big girl's brother. And that big girl said, how about if her brother killed our brother? And then Ruthie said, our brother already killed two fellas. And that big girl said, oh yeah, you're just a little smarty liar. And Ruthie said, oh yeah, our brother's hiding right now from killing a fella, and he could kill that big girl's brother too. And then they called names, and Ruthie threw the rock, and the big girl chased her, and I come home. Oh, my, said Ma wearily. Oh, mm, my dear sweet Lord Jesus in a manger. What we gonna do now? She put her forehead in her hand and rubbed her eyes. What we gonna do now? The smell of burning potatoes came from the roaring stove. Ma moved automatically and turned them. Rosa Sean, Ma called. The girl appeared around the curtain. Come watch this here supper. Winfell, you go out and you find Ruthie and bring her back here. Gonna whoop her, Ma? He asked hopefully. No. This here you couldn't do nothing about. Why, I wonder, did you have to do it? No. Won't do no good to whoop her. Run now and find her and bring her back. Winfeld rang for the car door, and he met three men tramping up the catwalk, and he stood aside while they came in. Ma said softly, Pa, I gotta talk to you. Ruthie told someone. Ruthie told some kids how times are hiding. What? She told, got in a fight and told. Why, the little bitch. No, she, she didn't know what she was doing. Now look, Pa, I want you to stay here. I'm going out to try and find Tom and tell him. I gotta tell him to be careful. You stick here, Pa, and kind of watch out for things. I'll take him some dinner. All right, Pa agreed. Don't you even mention to Ruthie what she done. I'll tell her. At that moment, Ruthie came in with Winfeld behind her. The little girl was dirtied. Her mouth was sticky, and her nose still dripped a little blood from her fight. She looked shamed and frightened. Winfeld triumphantly followed her. Ruthie looked fiercely about, but she went to a corner of the car and put her back in the corner. Her shame and fierceness were blended. I told her what she'd done, Winfeld said. Ma was putting two chops and some fried potatoes on a tin plate. Hush, Winfeld, she said. There ain't no need to hurt her feelings more than what they hurt. Ruthie's body hurtled across the car. She grabbed Ma around the middle and buried her head in Ma's stomach. And her strangled sobs shook her whole body. Ma tried to loosen her, but the grubby fingers clung tight. Ma brushed the hair on the back of her head gently, and she patted her shoulders. Hush, she said. You didn't know. Ruthie raised her dirty, tear-stained, bloody face. They stole my cracker, Jack, she cried. That big son bitch girl, she spouted me. And she went off into hard crying again. Hush, Ma said. Don't talk like that. Here, let go. I'm a-gone now. Why didn't you whoop her, Ma? If she didn't get snotty with a cracker, Jack, it wouldn't happen. Go on, give her a whoop. You just mind your business, mister, Ma said fiercely. You're gonna whoop yourself. Now let go, Ruthie. Winfeld retired to a rolled mattress, and he regarded the family cynically and dully. And he put himself in a good position of defence, for Ruthie would attack him at the first opportunity. And he knew it. Ruthie went quietly, heartbrokenly, to the other side of the car. Ma put a sheet of newspaper over the tin plate. I'm a-going now, she said. 
You ain't gonna eat nothing yourself? Uncle John demanded. Later, when I come back. I wouldn't want nothing now. Ma walked to the open door. She steadied herself down the steep, cleated catwalk. On the stream side of the boxcars, the tents were pitched close together, their guy ropes crossing one another, and the pegs of one at the canvas line of the next. The light shone through the cloth and all the chimneys belched smoke. Men and women stood in the doorways, talking. Children ran feverishly around. Ma moved majestically down the line of tents. Here and there she was recognised as she went by. Evening, Miss Joad. Evening. Taking something out, Miss Joad? There's a friend. I'm taking back some bread. She came to the last line of the tents. She stopped and looked back. A soft glow was on the camp, and the soft overtone of a multitude of speakers. Now and then, a harsher voice cut through. The smell of smoke filled the air. Someone played the harmonica softly, trying for an effect. One phrase, over and over. Ma stepped in among the willows beside the stream. She moved off the trail and waited, silently, listening to hear any possible follower. A man walked down the trail toward the camp, boosting his suspenders, buttoning his jeans as he went. Ma sat very still, and he passed on without seeing her. She waited five minutes, and then she stood up and crept on up the trail beside the stream. She moved quietly, so quietly that she could hear the murmur of the water above her soft steps on the willow leaves. The trail and stream strung to the left and then to the right again, until they neared the highway. In the grey starlight, she could see the embankment and the black round hole of the culvert where she always left Tom's food. She moved forward cautiously, thrust her package into the hole, and took back the empty tin plate which was left there. She crept back among the willows, forced her way into a thicket, and sat down to wait. Through the tangle, she could see the black hole of the culvert. She clasped her knees and sat silently. In a few moments, the thicket crept to life again. The field mice moved cautiously over the leaves. A skunk padded heavily and unselfconsciously down the trail, carrying a faint effluvium with him. And then a wind stirred the willows delicately, as though it tested them, and a shower of gilled leaves coasted down to the ground. Suddenly, a gust boiled in and raked the trees, and a cricking downpour of leaves fell. Ma could feel them on her hair and on her shoulders. Over the sky, a plump black cloud moved, erasing the stars. The fat drops of rain scattered down, splashing loudly on the fallen leaves and the cloud moved on and unveiled the stars again. Ma shivered. The wind blew past and left the thicket quiet, but the rushing of the trees went on down the stream. From back at the camp came the thin, penetrating tone of a violin feeling about for a tune. Ma heard a stealthy step among the leaves far to her left. She grew tense. She released her knees and straightened her head, the better to hear. The movement stopped, and after a long moment began again. A vine rasped harshly on the dry leaves. Master a dark figure creep into the open and draw near to the culvert. The black, round hole was obscured for a moment, and then the figure moved back. She called softly, Tom! The figure stood still. So still. 
so low to the ground that it might have been a stump. She called again. Tam! Oh, Tam! Then the figure moved. That you, Ma? Right over here. She stood up and went to meet him. You shouldn't have came, he said. I got to see you, Tom. I got to talk to you. It's near the trail, he said. Somebody might come by. Ain't you got a place, Tom? Yeah, but if... Well, suppose somebody seen you with me, the whole family being a jam. I got to, Tom. Then come along. Come quiet. He crossed the little stream, wading carelessly through the water, and Ma followed him. He moved through the brush, out into the field on the other side of the thicket, and along the ploughed ground. The blackening stems of the cotton were harsh against the ground, and a few fluffs of cotton clung to the stems. A quarter of a mile they went along the edge of the field, and then he turned into the brush again. He approached a great mound of wild blackberry bushes, leaned over, and pulled a mat of vines aside. You gotta crawl in, he said. Ma went down on her hands and knees. She felt the sand under her, and then the black inside of a mound no longer touched her, and she felt Tom's blanket on the ground. He arranged the vines in place again. It was lightless in the cave. Where are you, Ma? Here, right here. Talk soft, Tom. Don't worry, I've been living like a rabbit some time. She heard him unwrap the tin plates. Pork chops, she said, and fried potatoes. God almighty, and still warm. Ma could not see him at all in the blackness, but she could hear him chewing, tearing at the meat, and swallowing. It's a pretty good hat out, he said. Ma said uneasily, Tom, Ruthie, talk about you. She heard him gulp. Ruthie, what for? Well, it wasn't her fault. She got in a fight and says her brother will lick another girl's brother. You know how they do. And she told that her brother killed man was hiding. Tom was chuckling. With me, I was always going to get Uncle John after him, but he'd never do it. It's just kid talk, Ma. It's all right. No, it ain't, Ma said. Them kids tell it around. Then folks are here and then they'll tell around. Pretty soon, well... They liable to get men out just to look. Just in case. Tom, you gotta go away. That's what I said right along. I was scared somebody see you put stuff in that culvert, and, and then they come watch. I know, but I wanted you near. I scared for you. I ain't seen you. Can't see you now. How's your face? Getting well quick. Come close, Tom. Let me feel it. Come close. He crawled near. Her reaching hand found his head in the blackness, and her fingers moved down to his nose, and then over his left cheek. You got a bad scar, Tom, and your nose is all crooked. Maybe that's a good thing. Nobody'd know me. Maybe. If my prince wasn't on record, I'd be glad. He went back to his eating. Hush, she said. Listen. It's the wind, Ma. It's just the wind. The gust poured down in the stream, and the trees rustled under its passing. She crawled close to his voice. I want to touch you again, Tom. It's like I'm blind. It's so dark. I want to remember. Even if it's only my fingers that remember. You gotta go away, Tom. Yeah. I know it from the start.
We made it pretty good, she said. I've been squirreling money away. Hold up your hand, Tom. I got seven dollars here. I ain't gonna take your money, he said. I'll get along all right. Hold up your hand, Tom. I ain't gonna sleep none if you got no money. Maybe you gotta take a bus or something. I want you should go a long ways off. Three, four hundred miles. I ain't gonna take it. Tom, she said sternly, you take this money. You hear me? You got no right to cause me pain. You ain't playing fair, he said. I thought maybe you could go to a big city. Los Angeles, maybe. They wouldn't never look for you there. Hmm, he said. Lucky, Ma. I've been all day and all night hiding alone. Guess who I've been thinking about? Casey. He talked a lot. Used to bother me, but now I've been thinking what he said, and I can remember all of it. Says one time he went out in the wilderness to find his own soul, and he said he didn't have no soul that was his. Says he found he just got a little piece of a great big soul. Says a wilderness ain't no good. Cause his little piece of soul wasn't no good, lest it was with the rest and was whole. Funny how I remember. I didn't think I was even listening, but I know how a feller ain't no good alone. He was a good man, Ma said. Tom went on. He spouted out some scripture once. It didn't sound like no hell and fire scripture. He told it twice, and I remember it. Says it from the preacher. How's it go, Tom? Goes. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. That's part of her. Go on, Ma said. Go on, Tom. Just a little bit more. Again, if two lie together, then they have hate. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevails against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And that's scripture. Casey said it was. Called it the preacher. Hush, listen. It's only the wind, Ma. I know the wind, and I got to thinking, Ma. Most of the preaching is about the poor we shall have always with us. And if you got nothing, why just fold your hands and the hell with it? You're gonna get ice cream on gold plates when you're dead. And then this here preacher says two get a better reward for their work. Tom, she said, "What you aiming to do?" He was quiet for a long time. I've been thinking how it was in that government camp. How our folks took care of themselves, and if there was a fight, they fixed it themselves, and there wasn't no cops waggling their guns, but they was better order than then cops ever give. I've been a wondering why we can't do that all over, throw out the cops that ain't our people, all work together for our own thing, all farm our own land. Tom, Ma repeated, "What are you gonna do?" What Casey done, he said. But they killed him. Yeah, said Tom. He didn't duck quick enough. He wasn't doing nothing against the law. Ma, I've been thinking a hell of a lot of thinking about our own people living like pigs and. And the good rich land laying fallow, or maybe one fellow with a million acres, while a hundred thousand good farmers is starving. And I've been wondering if all our folks got together 
and yelled like them fellas yelled. Only a few of them at Hooper Ranch. Ma said, Tom, they'll drive you and cut you down like they done to young Floyd. They're going to drive me anyways. They're driving all our people. Tom, you don't aim to kill nobody, Tom. No, I've been thinking. As long as I'm an outlaw anyways, maybe I could... Hell, I ain't thought out clear, Ma. Don't worry me. They sat silent in the cold black cave of vines. Ma said, How am I going to know about you? They might kill you and I wouldn't know. They might hurt you. How am I going to know? Tom laughed uneasily. Well, maybe like Casey says, a feller ain't got a soul of his own, but only a piece of a big one. Then what, Tom? Then it don't matter. Then I'll be all around in the dark. I'll be everywhere. Wherever you look. Wherever there's a fight so hungry people can eat, I'll be there. Wherever there's a cop beating up a guy, I'll be there. If Casey knowed, why, I'll be in the way guys yell when they're mad. I'll be in the way kids laugh when they're hungry and they know supper's ready. And when folks eat the stuff they raise and live in the houses they built, why, I'll be there. See? God, I'm talking like Casey. Comes to thinking about it so much. Seems like I can see him sometimes. I don't understand, Ma said. I don't really know. Me neither, said Tom. It's just stuff I've been thinking about. Get thinking about a lot when you ain't moving around. You gotta get back, Ma. You take the money, then. He was silent for a moment. All right, he said. And Tom, later, when it's all blown over, you come back. You find us. Sure, he said. Now, you better go. Here, give me your hand. He guided her towards the entrance. Her fingers clutched his wrist. He swept the vines aside and followed her out. Go on up the field till you come to the sycamore on the edge, and then cut across the stream. Bye. Goodbye, she said, and she walked quickly away. Her eyes were wet and burning, but she did not cry. Her footsteps were loud and careless on the leaves as she went back through the brush. And as she went out of the dim sky, rain began to fall. Big drops and few, splashing on the dry leaves heavily. Ma stopped and stood still in the dripping thicket. She turned about, took three steps back towards the mound of vines, and then she turned quickly and went back towards the boxcar camp. She went straight out to the culvert and climbed up on the road. The rain had passed now, but the sky was overcast. Behind her on the road, she heard footsteps, and she turned nervously. The blinking of a dim flashlight played on the road. Ma turned back and started for home. In a moment, a man caught up with her. Politely, he kept his light on the ground and did not play it in her face. Evening, he said. Ma said, howdy. Looks like we might have a little rain. I hope not. Stop the picking. We need the picking. I need the picking too. You live at the camp up there? Yes, sir. Their footsteps beat on the road together. I got twenty acres of cotton. Little late, but it's ready now. I thought I'd come down and try to get some pickers. You'll get them all right. Season's near over. Hope so. My place is only a mile up that way. Six of us, said Ma. 
Three men, and me, and two little fellas. I'll put a sign out. Two miles this road. We'll be there in the morning. Hope it don't rain. Me too, said Ma. Twenty acres won't last long. The less it lasts, the gladder I'll be. My cotton's late. Didn't get in till late. What are you paying, mister? Ninety cents. We'll pick. I hear fellas say next year will be seventy-five, or even sixty. That's what I hear. There'll be trouble, said Ma. Sure, I know. Little fella like me can't do anything. The association sets the rates, and we got a mind. If we don't, we ain't got a farm. Little fella gets crowded all the time. They came to the camp. We'll be there, said Ma. Not much picking left. She went to the end box car and climbed the cleated wall. The low light of the lantern made gloomy shadows in the car. Pa and Uncle John and Nudley Mann squatted against the car wall. Hello, Ma said. Evening, Mr. Wainwright. He raised a delicately chiselled face. His eyes were deep under the ridges of his brows. His hair was blue-white and fine. A patina of silver beard covered his jaw and chin. Evening, ma'am, he said. We got picking tomorrow, Ma observed. Mile north, twenty acres. Better take the truck, I guess, Pa said. Getting more picking. Wainwright raised his head eagerly. Suppose we can pick? Why, sure, I walked a piece with this fella. He's come to get pickers. Cotton's nearly gone. Pretty thin. These here seconds. Gonna be hard to make a wage on seconds. Got a pretty clean first time. Your folks could maybe ride with us, Ma said. Split the gas. Well, that's friendly of you, ma'am. Saves us both, said Ma. Pa said, Mr. Wainwright, he got a worry. He come to us about it. We was talking her over. What's the matter? Wainwright looked down at the floor. Or Aggie, he said. She's a big girl, nearly sixteen, and growed up. Aggie's a pretty girl, said Ma. Let's him out, Pa said. Well, her and your boy Al, they're walking out every night. And Aggie's a good, healthy girl that ought to have a husband, else she might get in trouble. We never had no trouble in our family. But what with us being so poor off now, Miss Wainwright and me, we got to worrying. Suppose she got in trouble. Ma rolled down a mattress and sat on it. They out now? She asked. Always out, said Wainwright, or not. Hmm. Well, Al's a good boy. Kind of figure he's a dung hill rooster these days, but he's a good, steady boy. I couldn't want for a better boy. Oh, we ain't complaining about Al as a fella. We like him. But what scares Miss Wainwright and me? Well, she's a grown-up woman, and... What if we go away, or you go away, and we find out Aggie's in trouble? We ain't had no shame in our family. Ma said softly, We'll try and see that we don't put no shame on you. He stood up quickly. Thank you, ma'am. Aggie's a grown-up woman. She's a good girl. Just as nice and good. Well, we'll sure thank you, ma'am, if you keep shame from us. It ain't Aggie's fault. She's growed up. Pa'll talk to Al, she said. Or if Pa won't, I will. Wainwright said, Good night, then, and we'll sure thank you. 
he went round the end of the curtain. They could hear him talking softly in the other end of the car, explaining the results of his embassy. Ma listened a moment, and then, You fellas, come over and sit here. Pa and Uncle John got heavily up from their squats. They sat on the mattress beside Ma. Where's the little fellas? Pa pointed to a mattress in the corner. Ruthie, she jumped when Phil and bit him. Made them both lay down. Guess they're asleep. Rosa Sean, she went to sit with a lady she knows. Ma sighed. I found Tom, she said softly. I, I sent him away. Far off. Pa nodded, slowly. Uncle John dropped his chin on his chest. Couldn't do nothing else, Pa said. Think he could, John? Uncle John looked up. I can't think nothing out, he said. Don't seem like I'm hardly awake no more. Time's a good boy, Ma said. And then she apologised. I didn't mean no harm in saying I'd talk to Al. I know, Pa said quietly. I ain't no good anymore. Spent all my time thinking about how I used to be. Spent all my time thinking of home. And I ain't never gonna see it no more. This here's prettier, better land, said Ma. I know. I never even see it, thinking how the willow's lost its leaves now. Sometimes, figuring to mend that hole in the south fence. Funny. Women talking over the family. Women saying, we'll do this here and we'll go there. And I don't even care. Women can change a man, Ma said soothingly. Women got her life in her hands, and Ma got it in his head. Don't you mind? Maybe, well, maybe next year we can get a place. We got nothing now, Pa said. Coming a long time, no work, no crops. What we gonna do then? How we gonna get stuff to eat? And I tell you, Rosa Sean ain't far from due. Get so I hate to think. Go digging back to old time to keep from thinking. Seems like our life's over and done. No, it ain't, Ma smiled. It ain't, Pa. And that's one more thing a woman knows. I noticed that. Man, he lives and jerks. Baby born, and a man dies. And that's a jerk. Gets a farm and loses his farm. That's a jerk. Women, it's all one flow. Like a stream. Little eddies, little waterfalls. But the river, it goes right on. Women looks at it like that. We ain't gonna die out. People's going on. Changing a little, maybe. But going right on. How can you tell? Uncle John demanded. What's to keep everything from stopping? All the folks just getting tired and laying down. Ma considered. She rubbed the tiny back of one hand with the other, pushed the fingers of her right hand between the fingers of her left hand. Hard to say, she said. Everything we do, seems to me, is aimed right at going on. Seems that way to me. Even getting hungry, even being sick. Some die, but the rest is tougher. Just try to live the day. Just the day. Uncle John said, if only she didn't die at that time. 
Just live the day, Ma said. Don't worry yourself. There might be a good year next year back home, said Pa. Ma said, listen. There were creeping steps on the catwalk, and then Al came in past the curtain. Hello, he said. I thought you'd be sleeping by now. Al, Ma said, we're a-talking. Come sit here. Sure, okay. I want to talk too. I have to be going away pretty soon now. You can't. We need to talk to you here. We need you here. Why you gotta go away? Well, me and Aggie Wainwright, we figures to get married and I'm gonna get a job in a garage and, and we'll have a rent house for a while. He looked up fiercely. Where we are and there ain't nobody can stop us. They were staring at him. Al, Ma said at last, we're glad. We're awful glad. You are? Why, of course we are. You're a grown man. You need a wife. But don't do it right now. I promised Aggie, he said. We got to go. We can't stand this no more. Just stay till spring, Ma begged. Just till spring. Won't you stay till spring? Who'll drive the trucks? Well... Miss Wainwright put her head round the curtains. You heard yet? She demanded. Yeah, just heard. Oh my, I wish we had a cake or something. I'll set on some coffee and make some pancakes, Ma said. We got syrup. Oh my, Mrs. Wainwright said. Why, well, look, I'll bring some sugar. We'll put some sugar in them pancakes. Ma broke twigs into the stove and the coals from the dinner cooking started them blazing. Ruthie and Winfeld came out of their beds like hermit crabs from their shells. For a moment, they were careful. They watched to see whether they were still criminals. When no one noticed them, they grew bold. Ruthie hopped all the way to the door and back on one foot without touching the wall. Ma was pouring flour into a bowl when Rose of Sharon climbed the catwalk. She steadied herself and advanced cautiously. What's the matter? she asked. Why, it's news, Ma cried. We're gonna have a little party. Kinda Al and Angie Wainwright is gonna get married. Rose of Sharon stood perfectly still. She looked slowly at Al, who stood there, flustered and embarrassed. Mrs. Wainwright shouted from the other end of the car, I'm putting a fresh dress on Aggie. I'll be right over. Rose of Sharon turned slowly, She went back to the wide door, and she crept down the catwalk. Once on the ground, she moved slowly towards the stream, and the trail that went on beside it. She took the way Ma had gone earlier into the willows. The wind blew more steadily now, and the bushes wished steadily. Rose of Sharon went down on her knees and crawled deep into the brush. The berry vines cut her face and pulled at her hair, but she didn't mind. Only when she felt the bushes touching her all over did she stop. She stretched out on her back, and she felt the weight of the baby inside her. In the lifeless car, Ma stirred, and then she pushed the blanket back and got up. At the open door of the car, the grey starlight penetrated a little. Ma walked to the door and stood looking out. The stars were paling in the east. The wind blew softly over the willow thickets, and from the little stream came the quiet talking of the water.
most of the camp was still asleep. But in front of one tent, a little fire burned, and people were standing about it, warming themselves. Mark could see them in the light of the new dancing fire as they stood facing the flames, rubbing their hands. And then they turned their backs and held their hands behind them. For a long moment, Ma looked out, and she held her hands clasped in front of her. The uneven wind whisked up and passed, and a little bite of frost was in the air. Ma shivered and rubbed her hands together. She crept back and fumbled for the matches beside the lantern. The shade screeched up. She lighted the wick, watched it burn blue for a moment, and then put up its yellow, delicately curved ring of light. She carried the lantern to the stove and set it down while she broke the brittle, dry willow twigs into the firebox. In a moment, the fire was roaring up from the chimney. Rose of Sharon rolled heavily over and sat up. I'll get right up, she said. Why don't you lay a minute till it warms? Ma asked. No, I'll get up. Ma filled the coffee pot from the bucket and set it on the stove, and she put on the frying pan, deep with fat, to get hot for the pones. What's over you? she said softly. I'm a-going out, Rose of Sharon said. Out where? Going out to pick cotton. You can't, Ma said. You're too far along. No, I ain't, and I'm a-going. Rosa Sean, you wasn't to pancakes last night. The girl didn't answer. What you want to pick cotton for? Still no answer. Is it cause of Al and Aggie? This time, Ma looked closely at her daughter. Oh, well, you don't need to pick. I'm a-going. All right, but don't strain yourself. Get up, Pa. Wake up, get up. Pa blinked and yawned. Ain't slept out, he moaned. Must have been on to eleven o'clock when we went down. Come on, get up, are you, and wash. The inhabitants of the car came slowly to life, squirmed up out of the blankets, writhed into their clothes. Ma sliced salt pork in her frying pan. Get out and wash, she commanded. A light sprang up in the other end of the car, and there came the sound of breaking twigs from the Wainwright end. Miss Jowd, came the call. We're getting ready. We'll be ready. Al grumbled. What we gotta be up so early for? It's only twenty acres, Ma said. We gotta get there. Ain't much cotton left. Got to be there for she's picked. Ma rushed them dressed, rushed the breakfast into them. Come on, drink your coffee, she said. Got to start. We can't pick no cotton in the dark, Ma. We can be there when it gets light. Maybe it's wet. Didn't rain enough. Come on now, drink your coffee. Al, soon as you're through, we better get the engine running. She called. You ready, Miss Wainwright? Just eating. We'll be ready in a minute. Outside, the camp had come to life. Fires burned in the foot of the tents. The stovepipes from the boxcars spurted smoke. Al tipped up his coffee and got a mouthful of grounds. He went down the catwalk, spitting them out. We're ready, Miss Wainwright, Ma called. She turned to Rose of Sharon. She said, you got to stay. The girl set her jaw. I'm a-going, she said.
Ma, I got to go. Well, you got no cotton sack. You can't pull no sack. I'll pick into your sack. I wish you wouldn't. I'm a-going. Ma sighed. I'll keep my eye on you. Wish we could have a doctor. Rose of Sharon moved nervously about the car. She put on a light coat and took it off. Take a blanket, Ma said. Then, if you want to rest, you can keep warm. They heard the truck motor roar up behind the boxcar. We're going to be first out, Ma said exultantly. All right, get your sacks. Ruthie, don't you forget them shirts I fixed for you to pick in. Wainwrights and Jodes climbed into the truck in the dark. The dawn was coming, but it was slow and pale. Turn left, Ma told Al. There'll be a sign out where we're going. They drove along the dark road, and the other cars followed them, and behind in the camp, the cars were being started. Families piling in, and the cars pulled out on the highway and turned left. A piece of cardboard was tied to a mailbox on the right-hand side of the road, and on it, printed with a blue crayon, cotton pickers wanted. Al turned into the entrance and drove down to the barnyard, and the barnyard was full of cars already. An electric globe on the end of a white barn lighted up a group of men and women standing near the scales, their bags rolled under their arms. Some of the women wore their bags over their shoulders and crossed in front. We ain't so early as we thought, said Al. He pulled the truck against the fence and parked. The families climbed down and went to join the waiting group, and more cars came in from the road and parked, and more families joined the group. Under the light on the barn end, the owner signed them in. Harley, he said, H-A-W-L-E-Y, how many? Four. Will, Will. Benton, Benton. Amelia, Amelia. Claire, Claire. Who's next? Carpenter, how many? Six. He wrote them in the book, with space left for the weights. Got your bags? I got a few. Cost you a dollar. And the cars poured into the yard. The owner pulled his sheep-lined leather jacket around his throat. He looked at the driveway apprehensively. This twenty isn't going to take long to pick with all these people, he said. Children were climbing into the big cotton trailer, digging their toes into the chicken wire slides. Get off there, the owner cried. Come on down. You'll tear that wire loose. And the children climbed slowly down, embarrassed and silent. I'll have to take a tear for the dew, the owner said. Change it when the sun comes out. All right, go out when you want. Loud enough to see. People moved quickly out into the cotton field and took their rows. They tied the bags to their waists and they slapped their hands together to warm stiff fingers that had to be nimble. The dawn coloured over the eastern hills, and the wide line moved over the rows, and from the highway, the cars still moved in and parked in the barnyard until it was full, and they parked along the road on both sides. The wind blew briskly across the field. I don't know how you found out, the owner said. There must be a hell of a grapevine. Twenty won't last till noon. What's the name? Whom? How many? The line of people moved out across the field, 
and a strong, steady west wind blew their clothes. Their fingers flew to the spilling bowls and flew to the long sacks growing heavy behind them. Pa spoke to the man in the row to his right. Back home, we might get rain out of wind like this. Seems a little mite frosty for rain. How long you been out here? He kept his eyes down on his work as he spoke. His neighbor didn't look up. I've been here nearly a year. Would you say it was gonna rain? Can't tell. And that ain't no insult, neither. Folks that lived here all their lives can't tell. If the rain can get away from a crop, it'll rain. That's what they say out here. Pa looked quickly at the western hills. Big grey clouds were coasting over the ridge, riding the wind swiftly. Them looks like rain hurts, he said. His neighbour stole a squinting look. Can't tell, he said. And all down the line, the rows of people looked back at the clouds, and then they bent lower to their work, and their hands flew to the cotton. They raced at picking, raced against time, and cotton weight raced against the rain, and against each other. Only so much cotton to pick, only so much money to be made. They came to the other side of the field, and ran to get the next row. And now they faced into the wind, and they could see the high grey clouds moving over the sky, towards the rising sun. And more cars parked along the roadside, and new pickers came to be checked in. The line of people moved frantically across the field, weighed at the end, marked their cotton, checked the weights to their own books, and ran for new rows. At eleven o'clock, the field was picked, and the work was done. The wire-sided trailers were hooked on behind wire-sided trucks. They moved out to the highway, and drove away to the gin. The cotton fluttered out through the chicken wire, and the little cloud of cotton blew through the air, and the rags of cotton caught and waved on the weeds beside the road. The pickers clustered disconsolately back to the barnyard, and stood in line to be paid off. Hume, James, 22 cents. Ralph, 30 cents. Jode, Thomas, 90 cents. Winfield, 15 cents. The money lay in rolls, silver and nickels and pennies, and each man looked at his own book as he was being paid. Wainwright, Agnes. 34 cents. Tobin, 63 cents. The line moved past, slowly. The families went back to their cars, silently, and they drove slowly away. Jodes and Wainwrights waited in the truck for the driveway to clear, and as they waited, the first drops of rain began to fall. Al put his hand out of the cab to feel them. Rose of Sharon sat in the middle, and Ma on the outside. The girl's eyes were lusterless again. You shouldn't have came, Ma said. You didn't pick no more than fifteen pounds. Rose of Sharon looked down at her great bulging belly, and she didn't reply. She shivered suddenly and held her head high. Ma, watching her closely, unrolled her cotton bag, spread it over Rose of Sharon's shoulders, and drew her close. At last, the way was clear. Al started his motor and drove out into the highway. The big, infrequent drops of rain lanced down and splashed on the road, and as the truck moved along, the drops became smaller and closer. 
Rain pounded on the cab of the truck so loudly that it could be heard over the pounding of the old, worn motor. On the truck bed, the Wainwrights and Jodes spread their cotton bags over their heads and shoulders. Rose of Sharon shivered violently against Ma's arm, and Ma cried, Go faster, Al. Rose of Sharon's got a chill. Gotta get her feet in hot water. Al speeded the pounding motor, and when he came to the boxcar camp, he drove down close to the red cars. Ma was spouting orders before they were well stopped. Al, she commanded, you and John and Pa go into the willows and collect the dead stuff you can. We gotta keep warm. Wonder if the roof leaks. No, I don't think so. Be nice and dry, but we gotta have wood. We gotta keep warm. Take Ruthie and Winfield too. They can get twigs. This here girl ain't well. Ma got out, and Rose of Sharon tried to follow, but her knees buckled, and she sat down heavily on the running board. Fat Mrs. Wainwright saw her. What's the matter? Her time come? No, I don't think so, said Ma. She got a, got a chill. Maybe took cold. Give me a hand, will you? The two women supported Rose of Sharon. After a few steps, her strength came back, and her legs took her weight. I'm all right, Ma, she said. It was just a minute there. The older women kept hands on her elbows. Feet in hot water, Ma said wisely. They helped her up the catwalk and into the boxcar. You rub her, Mrs. Wainwright said. I got far gone. She used the last twigs and built up a blaze in the stove. The rain poured now, scoured the roof of the car. Ma looked up at it. Thank God we got a tight roof, she said. Them tents leak no matter how good. Just put on a little water, Miss Wainwright. Rose of Sharon lay still on the mattress. She let them take off her shoes and rub her feet. Mrs. Wainwright bent over her. You got pain? she demanded. No, just don't feel good. Just just feel bad. I got painkillers and salts, said Miss Wainwright. You're welcome to them if you want them. Perfectly welcome. The girl shivered violently. Cover me up, Ma. I'm cold. Ma brought all the blankets and piled them on top of her. The rain roared down on the roof. Now the wood-gatherers returned, their arms piled high with sticks, and their hats and coats dripping. Jesus, she's wet, Pa said. Sulks you in a minute. Ma said, better go back and get more. Burns up awful quick. Be dark pretty soon. Ruthie and Winfield dripped in and threw their sticks on the pile. They turned to go again. You stay, Ma ordered. Stand up close to the fire and get dry. The afternoon was silver with rain. The roads glittered with water. Hour by hour, the cotton plants seemed to blacken and shrivel. Pa and Al and Uncle John made trip after trip into the thickets and brought back the loads of dead wood. They piled it near the door until the heap nearly reached the ceiling and at last they stopped and walked towards the stove. Streams of water ran from their hats to their shoulders. The edges of their coats dripped, and their shoes squished as they walked. All right, now get off them clothes, Ma said. I got some nice coffee for you fellas, and you got dry overalls to put on. Don't stand there. The evening came early. In the boxcars, the families huddled together, 
listening to the pouring water on the roofs. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please leave a review. And if you really want to support me, share this chapter with your friends, family, and whoever you feel would enjoy it. And if you really wish to support me, head to my Patreon. The link is in the episode notes. If you choose to follow the podcast, you'll have three new chapters per week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Once again, I thank you for listening. And until next time, bye-bye. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please leave a review. And if you really want to support me, share this chapter with your friends, family, and whoever you feel would enjoy it. And if you really wish to support me, head to my Patreon. The link is in the episode notes. If you choose to follow the podcast, you'll have three new chapters per week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Once again, I thank you for listening. And until next time, bye-bye.